According to Pastor Terry Fulham, there's a small town church in upstate New York that has a kind of an interesting tradition. Uh, they had a minister there, a rector there for 35 years, and uh, he was loved by the church. He was loved by the community. And after he retired, he was replaced by a young priest. It was his first church, and he had a great desire to do very well. He had been at the church several weeks when he began to perceive that people weren't very happy with him. They were, they were upset with him, and he was troubled. Eventually, he called aside one of the lay leaders of the church and said, I don't know what's wrong, but I have a feeling that there's something wrong. The man said, well, Father, that's true. I hate to say it, but it's the way that you do communion. The way I do the communion service, what do you mean? Well, it's not so much what you do as what you leave out. Well, I, I don't think I leave anything out from the communion service. Oh, yes, you do. Just before our previous rector administered the chalice and the wine to the people, he'd always go over and touch the radiator. And then he would touch the radiator? I've never heard of that liturgical tradition. So the younger man called the former rector. He said, I haven't been here even a month, and I'm in trouble. In trouble? Why? Well, it's something to do with touching the radiator. Could that be possible? Did you do that? What are you talking about? Oh, yes, I did. Always before I touch, administered the chalice to the people, I touched the radiator so I would discharge the static electricity so I wouldn't shock them. For over 35 years, the untutored people of the congregation had thought that this was a part of the communion service. I have to tell you now that the church has gained the name the Church of the Holy Radiator. It's a true story. <laughs> well, we're nearing the end of our sermon series based on the well-known stories of Jesus from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We've been talking about famous stories, stories we know all summer long. We've talked about stories like Jesus' birth. We've talked about... Uh, we talked about Jesus uh, walking on the water. We talked about his temptation, his baptism. Uh, in the weeks to come, we're going to talk about his crucifixion, and we're going to talk about what to me is the greatest event in all of history, uh, better than the White Sox winning the World Series in 2005. Um, a lot better than that, actually. But we're going to talk about the resurrection in two weeks, and I'm very excited because I love the resurrection, and we're going to celebrate Resurrection Sunday here in August. But... Uh, we're coming to the end of the summer, and uh, unfortunately, it's almost over, but we're coming to the end of our series. And today, we're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper, and like I said, next week, the crucifixion, and the following week, the resurrection. But today, we're going to talk about a simple event that has had huge implications ever since it was established. It has ignited many controversies. It has ignited many arguments. The Lord's Supper is huge. And you know what, to me, I'm, I'm going to kind of go off book here for a moment. To me, the cool thing about the Lord's Supper is, is it's, it's just how simple it is. Uh, but it, it, it relates, it, we're people who like food, aren't we? Uh, human beings love food, especially here in America. we got all these restaurants and everything, and, and we love food. And uh, it's kind of neat how, how this, this simple act of eating, this simple meal, this simple food... Uh, represents so much. Um, last night, uh, David and I went to the White Sox game uh, up at U.S. Cellular Field, which we won 8-5. to Woo-hoo! And uh, we go to the Sox game, and, and I tell you what, the, the best part of the game is not the home run, the 442-foot home run that Jim Tomey hit. Uh, the best part of the game is not the singing and the, and the standing and the screaming and the cheering. To me, the best part of the game is when you walk into that concourse, you walk into the building, you walk up in the concourse... Oh, the smells. I, I turned into Pepe Le Pew. Or no, Sylvester, whichever one of the cats that, you know, floats on the, the, the breeze, you know, when he smells the, oh, yes, the bratwurst and the, 
the onions and all the bad breath-inducing food that you eat at the ballpark. That's just so great. And, and we love food. Americans just love food. And, and, and Jesus takes this simple food, and it means so very, very much. We're going to talk about that today. That's what we're going to talk about. I just wanted to, I just wanted to tell you I went to the Sox game last night. Um, but uh, a little bread and a little wine have gone a long way throughout history. And we're going to talk a little bit just briefly about how it started. And then I want to focus on some thoughts about, it, about what I think it means. Well, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30 is our passage for this morning. Matthew 26, 17 through 30. And I'm not actually going to read through the passage, but I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it and tell the story of Matthew 26, 17 through 30, the Last Supper. To say that the Passover was important to the Jews is an understatement. It was a part of a feast that lasted seven days. The disciples went and they made preparations for, to celebrate the Passover with Jesus. I love what Jesus says to them in one of the other Gospels that I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. The setting and the timing of the events are far less important than the events that followed themselves. Jesus and the disciples were reclining at the table when Jesus told them that one of them would betray him. The disciples protest and Jesus insists that it's true. He says, the one who dipped his bread in a bowl of a, few, of a fruit puree mixed with herbs was the one who would betray him. Now, we tend to think of this as one person, that it was just Judas, right? I mean, G Judas must have been the one who did that. But in reality, it's most likely that all of them would have dipped their fruit. That's why they all said, surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I. At one point in the meal, somebody, uh, most likely all the disciples, had dipped their fruit in. Uh, drip their bread in the bowl with Jesus. The point that Matthew is making is that someone very close to Jesus, someone very close to him was going to betray him. It was a friend, someone close. And that friend, how did he betray him? In the cruelest of ways, with a kiss. Judas, perhaps not realizing what he had done, said, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, yes, it is you. The reason I, I say that perhaps he had not realized what he had done goes to the point of motivation. Why did Jesus, Judas betray Jesus? Why did he do what he did? We learn from scriptures in John 12, 6 that Judas was greedy and that he had been stealing their money that they carried as a group. Did, G, did Judas do it for purely monetary purposes? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Perhaps. Did Judas agree to betray Jesus because he hated Jesus? I don't think that was the case at all. So why did Judas hand Jesus over to the authorities? Perhaps it was to force Jesus' hand, to get him to take over, to reveal himself to the Romans, to say to the Romans, I am the king of the Jews. I am the one. I am the king of Israel. To take up the throne of David, to restore the kingdom to Israel. The disciples had even asked him, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Much has been said and much has been written about Judas' motivations. I don't know that Judas wanted Jesus to die. I think he wanted Ju Jesus to do away with the Romans. And then we come to the institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus and the disciples are reclining at the table, and Jesus breaks bread and gives thanks and says, Take and eat. This is my body. He does the same with the cup and says, Drink, it, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Praise his name. 
Jesus is saying that the bread and the wine were symbols. The bread and the wine could not have literally become the body and the blood of Christ at this time. He was still alive. He was right there. His body had not yet been broken. His blood had not yet been shed. In 1 Corinthians 11, we are told by Paul that Jesus told the disciples to do this in remembrance of him. It was the custom of the early church to meet on the first day of the week in order to break bread. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 talks about this. They came together. They did this often. Whenever you do it, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Do it often. Do it in remembrance of Christ. That's what it's all about. In his book, Doubting, author Alistair McGrath shared the following story to illustrate how we can know God loves us. He says, an aunt of mine died some time ago. She, living, she lived to be about 80 or so, and she had never married. During the course of cleaning out her possessions, we uh, came across a battered old photograph of a young man. My aunt, it had turned out, had fallen hopelessly in love as a young girl. It had ended tragically. She never loved anyone else and kept a photograph of the man she loved for the remainder of her life. Why? Partly to remind herself that she had once been loved by someone. As she, grew, as she had grown old, she knew that she would have difficulty believing that. At one point in her life, she really had meant something to someone. And that's so important. That someone had once cared for her and regarded her as his everything. It could all have seemed a dream, an illusion, something she had invented in her own mind in order to console her in her declining years, except that the photograph gave lie to that. It reminded her that it had not been invented. She really loved someone, and she had been loved in return. The photograph was her sole link to a world in which she had been valued. The communion bread and wine are like that photograph, McGrath says. They reassure us that something that seems too good to be true something that we might even be suspected of having invented, really did happen. It's all about remembering. It's all about remembrance. There are three places that we need to look when it comes to communion. Three places we need to look. And we do this every Sunday. The first is we got to look back. We have to look back to where we have been. We have to look back to what Jesus did. It's so important that as we uh, come to the time of communion, and I, I, I wanted, uh, I, I feel bad that we've already taken communion today, but I want you to know that the, the first of these three places we got to look is we got to look back. We look back at, at the, the most important thing about communion is the sacrifice of Christ, what the body and blood are represented by, the bread and the juice that we take. And we look back to where Jesus was. We look back to his sacrifice on the cross, that he gave his everything, that he gave it all, that he laid down his life for those he considered to be his friends, that he laid down his life for you. He laid down his life for me. We remember, we look back. We look back at the cross, and not only to the cross, but we look back to the empty tomb. For in the empty tomb, there is a promise. In the empty tomb, there is hope. In the empty tomb, there is joy. In the empty tomb, there is eternity waiting for us in the empty tomb there's resurrection of which we will one day participate we look back we look back to what jesus did we look back to what we have done there is a time to examine ourselves as we look back at communion to examine the previous week or the previous weeks or the previous months or the previous years to look back to look back 
and say, this is where I was, this is where I've been. And I don't think it's just a time to remember sin. I don't think it's just a time to remember these are the horrible, terrible things I've done. These are the things that I thought. These are the things that I said. These are the things that I've done that I shouldn't have done, said, or thought. But we look back at the journey. We look back at where we've been. Here, this is where I was a month ago, and God has brought me this far. This is where I was two years ago, and God has brought me this far. This is where I was. I was way over here five years ago. And in this journey of faith, God has moved me and helped me and pushed me and pulled me along to the point where I've gotten here. I have grown in my faith. I have grown in my trust. I have grown in my love for him and for others. I have learned to love as he loves. And as I look back, I can see where I've been. But we don't just look back. Uh, there isn't just a looking back. There is also a looking ahead. We look forward. We look ahead to Christ's return. We need to look forward to the day when we partake with Jesus in the presence of the Father. We look forward to the day when Christ comes back. We look forward to the day when we return, well, when we go to our heavenly home. I don't know about you folks, but when life is beating me up, when things are going bad, when things are hard, that's what i got to keep my mind on. That this life is temporary. That these trials are momentary. The tribulations, the difficulties, the struggles, it's all momentary. It's all temporary. I am looking ahead. And when Jesus said that he will drink this anew in his Father's kingdom, that there is coming a day when we will celebrate this with Jesus. That the hands that took the nails are the same hands that took and broke the bread, and they will break it once again. The hands that took the nails will hand us the cup. That there is coming a day when we will participate with him. That we will do this. I love communion. I love communion because it's something that, the very word communion means to commune. And not only do we commune with one another, but we commune with God. We commune with Jesus. And when we do this in his Father's kingdom, when we go to heaven and we're there with him, we will commune with him face to face. We will share this wonderful feast face to face. Do you look forward to the day? Are you excited about Jesus coming back? Are you excited about seeing him face to face? Or do we, do we have doubts? Maybe it is just a story we've somebody invented. Maybe it's just a, a, a wish upon a star. Maybe it's just a pie in the sky. Maybe it really isn't going to happen. And there are days that it feels like that, that it isn't going is, to. Are we ever going to go home? Is Jesus ever going to come back? Do we ever get to go to heaven? The answer is yeah. The answer is yes. The answer is heaven's yes. We get to go to heaven. We will go to heaven. We will see Jesus. We will spend eternity with him. We will be in God's presence. We will celebrate this communion feast with him face to face. And that is something that we have to look forward to. That is something that we look ahead to. Sidebar. One of the things I love about communion is the history of it. This has been going on for, for 2,000 years nearly. Nearly 2,000 years people have broken bread and drank juice or wine Think about the people who have celebrated this. 
that not only do we commune with one another, we are communing with saints in history. Jesus did this. Peter did this. The Apostle Paul did this. Augustine did this. Justin Martyr did this. People, as you go on through history, there have been kings who have done this. There have been presidents who have done this. Heads of state, world leaders, religious leaders. Billy Graham has done this. Mother Teresa did this. Martin Luther King Jr. did this. Christians, people who believe in Jesus throughout history have done this. We commune with them. There's a beautiful history and a beautiful uniting in communion. We may not agree on everything. There may be things that we have fundamental differences on. There may be things... And I'm not just talking about people in history. I'm not just talking about people in other denominations, people in other uh, faith traditions uh, regarding uh, Christianity, uh, people in other uh, people who believe differently than we do about Christianity. There are people in this room who we don't, we're not all on the same page in this room. We believe different things about communion and baptism and, and God and Jesus here in this room. Yet there's one thing that we can agree on, that we love Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins, and that when we come around this table, which we really don't come around the table, but you know what I mean. When we come around the table, we're on the same page. If, even just for a moment, that we do this in remembrance of the one who gave his life for us. That's what we do. It's beautiful. It's positively beautiful. There was a story I was going to tell, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get off the book a little bit more today. So uh, let me see where I can find my story. Oh, it's uh, slide nine. And uh, <laughs> Pastor Lyaklov writes about uh, Konstantin Moscovy, a, r- a prominent Russian painter of the 19th century, who once painted this enormous picture depicting a wedding feast. The bride is standing, and the guests hold out their cups toward her, and the explanation with the painting says that they are shouting, Gorko, Gorko, meaning bitter, bitter. The shouts are in reference to the wine, which is turned bitter. Much like our wedding custom of tapping on glasses, that annoying, I'm sorry, that beautiful custom of tapping on glasses to get a couple to kiss, the, the Russian custom says the newlywed couple must kiss in order to make the wine sweet again. I like that. Isaiah 25, 6 promises, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And when we are finally together with Jesus, when the bridegroom and his bride kiss, Isaiah's promise of a feast with the finest of wines will come to pass. The wine once bitter will be sweet indeed. The day is coming. And we look ahead to it. We look forward to it. The day is coming when Jesus will return to take us to our true home. The day is coming when all pain will cease, when all hurting will cease, the heartaches will cease, and praise God, the sin will cease when Jesus returns. He will come back to take us to be home. And not the home that we live in now, whether it be an apartment or a termite-ridden home. The home that we live in now is just a temporary place. These shells that we live in are just temporary. Like I said, that there is coming a day when we will be given new bodies and a new home. That one that God has prepared for us, that Jesus has prepared for us in his Father's kingdom. We will go home to be with him. Are you ready for that day? Are you excited for that day? Are you ready for Jesus to come back? I know I am. 
I cannot wait for Jesus to, to return. I can't wait to go home. I want to go. Let's go. Well, maybe not right now. Wait five minutes. Or wait ten. Sermon will be over by then. But until that day, we must look ahead. When we gather around the table, we must look ahead. And the temptation is there, like I said, to look to the past, to look to the to look behind us. But Jesus says, look forward, look ahead to the day when I will drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He is coming again, and let's look forward to it. Well, we can look back, and we can look ahead, but we also need to look around. Like I said, communion is a the very word to commune means to come together. We have words like communicate, to converse. We commune with one another. We look around. Look around this room. Do it for just a moment. Look around this room. You have already today, you have communed with these people. You have communed with me. We have communed together around this table. We have shared the bread. We have shared the juice. We have communed today. We look around Here's the cool thing about communion, all right? The institution of the Lord's Supper, when you think about the institution of the Lord's Supper, who was there? You had guys like Nathaniel and Thaddeus and Bartholomew. You had the disciples, but you know what? There were two other disciples. There were two disciples there who had a very prominent role in the events that followed on that day and the days to follow. One was named Peter. We like to think of Peter on the day of Pentecost, standing up there, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We like to think of Peter as the bold one. Peter and John being beaten for, their, uh, for proclaiming the, the gospel of Jesus, and they went away rejoicing. How is that possible? To be beaten within an inch of your life and to go away shouting praises to God because they had been considered worthy of suffering for the name. That's the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's the power of God's Spirit working on you. That's the power of God's Spirit changing you. But before the Spirit came on Peter, before uh, the day of Pentecost, there was Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Denying that he even knew him. Denying that he even knew him. That would be like Brandon coming up to me. Hey, Sean, didn't you go to the baseball game with David? David who? I don't know any David. What are you talking about? And just last night, I went to the baseball game with him. How could I do that? How could I deny that I know one of my, one of my best friends? How could I deny that I even know him? And that's what Peter did. And not just once. I saw you with Jesus. No, you didn't. Didn't I see you with Jesus? Nope. Not me. Don't even know the man. Weren't you? Uh-uh. Not me. Not you. Wrong guy. Three times. This guy who said, I would die for you, denied that he even knew him. And he's there at the table, eating the bread, drinking the wine and sitting not too far from Peter with 30 silver coins in his pocket is Judas Jesus knew what had happened surely not I right yeah it's you I know what you've done I know what you did sitting there at the table 
Jesus knew what he did. He didn't say, okay, look, you 11, you're cool with me. You, you're going to do something bad. You're going to deny me, but that's all right. You're cool. You can stay here at the table. But you, you, you got to go. No, he had already dipped his bread in the bowl with Jesus. He was there at the table. He was welcome at the table. So don't ever tell me that someone is too sinful or too bad or too horrible or too terrible or too unforgivable or too unlovable to not come around this table. Because everyone is welcome here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome at this table. If you are a believer in Jesus, regardless of denominational or baptismal status, you are welcome at this table. The Christian churches and churches of Christ, of which we are part of the Restoration Movement, have a, a history, a tradition of what's called open communion. You can read about it. Search online at christianstandard.com. You can read all about it, that we believe in open communion. It doesn't matter what denomination you belong to, whether you're Lutheran or Presbyterian or Baptist or Assemblies of God or whatever, you are welcome at the table. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are welcome at the table. You know why? Because nobody's got it all figured out. Is there any way really that any of us can grasp, can truly grasp this amazing memorial feast and what it represents and what it means? The answer is no. What did Jesus, sit down and talk with me. Let's sit down and have a conversation. What did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body, this is my blood? You get a thousand different answers. The fact is, everyone is welcome here. And as you look around, as you look at each other, as you look at those gathered in this room today, there is not one person who is, there's not one person who's worthy to be here, but there's not one person who is turned away. Jesus will not turn you away from his table. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. So we look around and we welcome one another with open arms and acceptance. In his letters to a young evangelical, Tony Campolo shares a story from his youth about taking communion. He says, sitting with my parents at a communion service when I was very young, perhaps six or seven years old, I became aware of a young woman in the pew in front of us who was sobbing and shaking. The minister had just finished reading the passage of scripture written by Paul that says, whosoever shall eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11:27. As the communion plate with its small pieces of bread was passed to the crying woman before me, she waved it away and then lowered her hair in despair. And he says, and my father, it was then that my father, my Sicilian father, leaned over her shoulder and in his broken English said sternly, take it, girl, it was meant for you. Do you hear me? She raised her head and nodded, and then she took the bread and ate it. I knew that at that moment some kind of heavy burden was lifted from her heart and mind. Since then, I have always known that a church that could offer communion to hurting people was a special gift from God. This table, the table of the Lord, the table where the supper is, the table where communion is, the table is a special table. It is a healing table. And as we look back in remembrance, and as we look ahead in hope, and we look around in humility, we need to pray for healing. That somehow, through the power of communion, we would find our souls healed, that we would be healed from our wounds, that we would find rest here, that we would find comfort here, that we would find peace here, that we would never take communion for granted, and that we would be ever mindful that communion is bigger than us. There was a guy in my first church 
who uh, came from a different uh, denomination, and he started coming to our church, and he said, you know what? He's like, he did a communion meditation one day, and he said, when I first came to church here, I didn't like the fact that we took communion every Sunday. He said, I thought it would take away from the specialness of it. I thought it would take away uh, from how significant it was, that it would lose some of that, that it would lose its significance. And then he came to find out, he said, after taking it week after week after week, that it became more special that it became more significant. That there is something about that weekly reminder, that we need that weekly reminder that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus gave his life for us, that he suffered and he bled and he died. He took the nails for us. He took the crown of thorns for us. He took the whip for us. He took the rod for us. He took it all, the spear. He took it all for you and he took it all for me. And I need that weekly reminder. I need that time. I need that weekly reminder. I crave that weekly reminder that I am not worthy, that I am a sinner saved by grace, and that it is only through his blood that I can find salvation. I need that. I don't know about you, but I need that. And I know that if it was just for me, if, if I was the only one who needed that reminder, Jesus would have broke the bread and passed the cup and said, do this in remembrance of me. Don't take it for granted. Use the time every Sunday to rethink the significance and the importance of communion. When you return next week, when you come back to this place next week, pause and reflect on what you are doing because you are doing it in remembrance of him. But you are also looking forward with hope and you look around with love and acceptance and a welcoming attitude to those who need it as much as you do. Because I know that as much as I need it and as much as I crave it, that many of you are the same way. 